We welcome Dr. John Presley. Uh, he's worshipped with us before. This is his first time to speak, but he is a uh, theology professor at CCU. So please come and share the word. In Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and gives him instructions from God about the naming of the child that Mary will have. He says, you'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you've listened closely, the communion meditation, the songs we've sung today have emphasized that, that, that Christmas is more than just simply the birth of a cute child. It's actually a child who has a destiny, a mission to accomplish, a mission that ultimately leads to the cross where he gives his life as a sacrifice. And thus, as his name says, he will save his people from their sins. Well, that's where we are today as we come back to the study of Mark 14, where you've been for quite a while. But now we're coming close to the cross. We come today to the Jewish trials. It's a pleasure for me to be here and to lead you in this study today, because this is a good portion of Scripture. And I've entitled the message, The Silent Messiah. The Silent Messiah. Now, there's a story to be told here, but verse 61 really picks up on the story quite nicely with just one simple statement. Jesus kept silent. He answered nothing. Now, without even getting into the story already, we can just take the concept of silence and and realize, you know, there are a bunch and bunch of proverbial sayings about silence, how there's a time and place for some good old silence. Take, for example, just the familiar statement, silence is golden. Or here's a little short ditty an English writer came up with, words good, silence better. Proverbs has a whole bunch of proverbs about silence. Chapter 17, verse 28, even a fool can be thought to be wise if he'll remain silent. We've got a more modern version of that same thing. What it says is this, it's better for people, it's better to be silent and for people to think that you're a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) Oh, there's a lot more we could do, but I I like this one from Job, the book of Job, chapter 40. Now, you remember the story of Job? Here's a man, a good man suffering, but the question is why? And everybody's got opinions. There's his three friends with their opinions. There's the prophet with his opinions. And Job's got two or three of his own. Finally, God shows up. Now they're waiting to see who was right. Actually, he says, you're all wrong. Every one of you spoke out of turn. Here's what Job says in chapter 40, verse 4 and 5. He said, I'm going to take my hand and put it over my mouth. Because I spoke once, I was wrong. I spoke twice, I was wrong. I'm going to keep quiet. And down in the mouth, we'd say, shut your mouth. Because you've spoken out of turn. And you should have just kept quiet all along if you didn't know what you're talking about. You know, we've got a lot we can say about the concept of silence and how it sometimes serves a purpose. I want to show you today from this text how Jesus used silence in a very powerful way as he stood before his trial. Now, we start with verse 53, and the story is told of first the accusations that were made against him in a court of law. And we watch how there was no response to the false accusations. Verse 53 tells us that they, the soldiers who arrested him in the garden, they led him to the high priest. Now, there's a a bigger story here. The the trial that takes place among the Jewish authorities was in three stages. John, in chapter 18 of his gospel, tells us the first stage. They first took him to Annas. Now, he used to be the high priest, but he was deposed by the Roman authorities, and so he's, he's the former high priest. But he's an honorary position, so... They took him there first, just out of respect for him. Now, he has no real authority, so Jesus said not a word. He, he, he wouldn't speak at all. Well, that, that, that went downhill quickly. So then they took him, secondly, to Caiaphas. 
Now, Caiaphas is currently the authorized high priest. He's the son-in-law of, of Annas, so they kept the priesthood in the family, but, but he's the one that's got some real authority. Except that he himself doesn't have the authority to condemn a, a person to, to death, and so he, he needs the counsel, as Mark refers to it. We, we call it the Sanhedrin. Now, Mark tells you in verse 53 about this council. It had representative men, people of three groups. It had chief priests. Not all the priests, of course, just some of the senior priests, a few that would sit on the council. It had elders. That's more of your lay types, your Jewish leaders, businessmen and such. And there'd be a few of those that would sit on the council. And then scribes. That's the teachers of the law. That'd be the professors like myself who know the law in detail. So they have some who sit on the council. Now, this trial is taking place way late at night. After all, this is Thursday night of that last week. Jesus and his disciples have just had their last supper for two or three hours in the upper room, followed by that long time in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying and praying so long his disciples are falling asleep two or three times. You see, we're well past bedtime now. We're up in the midnight hour or so, and now they're having a trial. What that means is that servants have to be sent out to gather all these people to come in and they'll trickle in one by one by one and take their seats. In the meantime, though, Caiaphas is going to start the interrogation. So his people are going to take over. Now, verse 54 tells us that Peter was there. Peter followed from a distance, it says. So there in the guard where his master was arrested, he'll follow. And not so close, he gets in trouble, but not so far back, he can't keep up with them on, on the dark roads and in the dark streets of Jerusalem. But he'll follow. Now, what's he doing in the courtyard? Because after all, this is not open to the general public. Well, John chapter 18 tells us the story. There's two disciples that followed Jesus. The rest took off and ran. But, but John and Peter, they followed Jesus. When they get to the gate, now John just... He's able to come on in. Apparently, his family has some connections. He's got the credentials, and he can come in. But they stop Peter, so John goes back, vouches for him, and then brings Peter in as well. And then it says Peter was standing there in the courtyard watching the trial. Now, the trial proper is going to be inside the building itself. It it may be one of those buildings that would have the four walls but have windows, and you could watch. Or it may be like was often done with courtyards. You'd have that open fourth wall opening up into the courtyard so you can see clearly what's going on in there as you stood out there in the courtyard, the officials inside doing it. Now, I don't know whether you can hear what's being said, but you can certainly see the action, see what's going on. And Peter stood there and watched. Verse 55, back to the trial now. We're told, and they sought testimony to put Jesus to death. Folks, this is a rigged game. They already have a a, a predetermined outcome here. They want him dead, and they're going to find a way to do it legally. Actually, all four gospel writers, they drop that notice ever so often as they tell the story of Jesus, how the religious leaders would get together and conspire. How are we going to kill him? Even in this chapter, at the very beginning of verse 1, Mark says, and and they got together figuring out how can we put him to death. Now, you may be thinking, well, why didn't they just go ahead and do it? No, no, no. They want to kill him in such a manner that it doesn't come back on them. In case later there's some kind of scrutiny, either from Jewish authorities or from Roman authorities, they want this thing by the book so that he testifies in a court of law, says something they can actually convict him of a crime, and then when they sentence him to death, it'll all look legit. So they're looking for a way to pull that off. So what they need is they need somebody to show up in court and testify to this great wrong that Jesus has done. So we're told in the next verse they had witnesses. Now, keep in mind already this thing is, is, is rigged from the start, and there's a lot of in, 
consistencies here in the way they do this thing. For example, th- th- this is not business hours when they have a trial. You know something's going on in the middle of the night. You're having a trial. Also, this is the Passover. Th- this is the Holy Week of Unleavened Bread. Listen, they did just like we do with holidays. You shut down some of your civic and business organizations because there's a holy day here where we honor God. But these fellows are ignoring that. They're having a trial to get rid of Jesus. Not sure if they even gave Jesus a, a defense advocate. They may have appointed somebody, but even if they did, he's not going to have any prep time at all. No, no, th- this thing is a setup to see if they can get rid of him. And so Mark specifically says in the next verse, many witnesses came. He calls them false witnesses with false testimony. Now, I felt that these, these fellows, they had to be roused out of bed as well. And, and maybe there's been some talk in advance of when the time comes, here's what you do. Or maybe they're telling them as they bring them in. Now, I need to go in there and tell about when you heard him say this or that. So they will, one by one, they'll take their turn and they'll do their testimony. The problem, Mark says, is they couldn't get their act together. They couldn't tell the same story close enough they would actually work in the legal records as a legitimate sentence to death. So... What was the deal? Well, the deal is these fellows, they they weren't quite ready for this. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if those witnesses might have been bribed to come. After all, they they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to get him to betray Jesus. So, So it may be that they've bribed these guys, but they just haven't prepped them well. They're not getting it done. Now, what Mark does, he gives you an example of one of the accusations that this was one of their best, one of their strongest, and they still couldn't get it right. He says that some of them stood up and they said, hey, we heard him. Talk about destroying the temple. Now, that'd be a pretty good charge. If he threatened any kind of action against the temple, well, that's the holy house of God. Well, that'd be a sacrilege. You, you could do something with that threat. So they've got to get the witnesses out there. Now, you know what Jesus really said if you've read the Gospel of John, chapter 2. What Jesus said was, destroy this temple and in three days. I'll raise it back. At the time, I don't think anybody really understood. Even the disciples didn't catch what that was. John says, as he tells the story, it wasn't until after his death and resurrection we figured it out. He wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about himself. Kill me, and in three days I'll come back to life. And, and then they finally understood. But at the time when Jesus said it, way back at the beginning of his ministry, they, they didn't get it. But it doesn't matter. There's witnesses here now going to tell that story. It's a little over three years ago, so they're going to have a hard time getting it right. So as Mark says, some stood up and they said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple And in three days, I'll bring it back. And that's all they needed to hear. Jesus threatening to destroy the temple. Now, actually, that wasn't what he said. And there will some who will show up and they'll say it the way they heard it. He said, you destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Well, that kind of messes things up when you got the two different testimonies and you can't really clearly establish. Jesus said, I will tear it down. Well, that one was a wash. They just couldn't get it done. So finally... The high priest takes it in his own hands. He comes point center, and he decides he's going to try to see if he can get Jesus to say something on record in this court of law. They can then twist it around and use it against him, because so far he hasn't said anything. So he finally just stands there, and in verse 6 he says, hey, are you not going to answer anything? Can't you hear the charges? Aren't you going to say something? And verse 61 says, and Jesus kept silent. He answered nothing. You know, what a silence that was. That was a powerful silence. Very impressive. Because, you know, the typical person is going to say something. You're going to throw back a response. That's not true. That's a lie. That, I didn't do that. Oh, Jesus just stands there with all the accusations, false as they were, and says nothing. That's powerful. 
It, it must be because it impressed the gospel writers, all four gospel writers, when they tell the story of the trials of Jesus. They mention that, how he stood there and just took it all, said nothing. I know those people standing there accusing him, they, they must have been impressed because this this be something that make you nervous. It, it would unhinge you a little bit to, to see somebody who's not the typical defendant just stand there silent, not intimidated at all, just stand there silent. You know, this was also a, a very calculated silence, very strategic. Now, not the strategy of a typical defense lawyer where the first thing you do is tell your client, don't, don't speak till I tell you it's okay, because you don't want him to say something that can be used against him. You've seen those cop shows where they got the suspect, he's in the interrogation room, the police are coming at him, in walks the lawyer, don't say another word. And, and then every time he wants to say something, they say, hey, we got you, we got you, we got your DNA on the, on the scene of the crime, and, and we, we're going to nail you for taking the money and, and for killing him. Wait, I didn't kill him. No, he was dead when I went in there. I, I just grabbed the money. And his lawyer saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. Why? Because they're trying to get him for murder, and he's trying to defend himself, but he incriminates himself. You see, a good defense lawyer say, hey, don't say a word. Just be quiet until I tell you to speak. Now, that's not Jesus' strategy. He, he's not trying to protect himself from any kind of self-incrimination. No, that's not the point at all. His strategy is this. He's going to wait until they ask, ask the question he wants to answer. See, he wants the real issue between him and them to finally come to the surface, and then I'll address that. Until you get there, i got nothing to say. And his silence forces their hand to put forward the real beef between them and Jesus. Oh, it was a calculated silence. You know, it was a disciplined silence. It takes a lot of self-control and self-discipline for you to stand there when people are throwing things at you and you hold your tongue and just say, I'm not speaking yet. I'll wait till I'm ready. I'll wait for the right time and the right words, and then I'll speak, but I'm not going to do it yet. Oh, that takes self-control and discipline. You know, there may be a lesson here for us as we watch the silent Messiah, see if we can learn something from him. James has a lesson he can give us. It's in James chapter 1, verse 19. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. I like that. Be quick to hear. You know what you and I often do when, when somebody's throwing stuff at us? Man, we just cut them off and we, we get on the defense. I got something to say right now. James says, now, why don't you wait? Let them finish. Why don't you let it sink in? Why don't you think about it before you respond? So be quick to hear and then be slow to speak. Make sure you're ready to say what needs to be said. And you've, you've thought through your words carefully. And, and slow to express your anger. And as the Bible teaches, anger itself is not the problem because it's a natural emotion like so many other emotions we have. But, you know, when we get strong emotions, we're always advised, bring them under control. As Paul can say in Ephesians, be, you can be angry, but don't sin. That is, watch how you express how you feel. And so it's good for us to slow down and, and not say what I'm thinking right at the moment. I might regret some of the words I say. No, pull back. Think it through, get yourself ready, and at the right time, say the right words. That's James' advice. That's good advice, because I see Jesus, the silent Messiah, with a lot of self-control, self-discipline. He stands there, and he listens to everything they throw at him, but he waits, because he's waiting for the right moment, for the right question, and then he'll give the right answer. Well, that's what happens in the second part of our passage, as we continue the story, starting with verse 61. Because now they're ready to hit him with that question. And with that, they'll bring it to a conclusion, a condemnation to death. But you watch him, there's no resistance when he's condemned to die. The high priest says to him, okay, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? So are you claiming to be that 
long ago prophesied Messiah, the one the Old Testament talked about. Are you saying you're the fulfillment of those prophecies? And are you claiming to be some kind of son of God? Something more than man, but something more heavenly, something more divine. Is that what you're saying? Now, this really gets to the beef that the Jewish leaders had with Jesus. Now, first, he he claimed he was the Messiah. Actually, there's a bunch of people claim that before Jesus, after Jesus. And that in itself won't get you killed. Now, if you claim to be the Christ, what that means is now we've got to test you. So can you produce the signs that will confirm you're the Christ? Of course, Jesus did many signs and miracles. They just didn't care for what he did. But that in itself is not the real issue that he claims to be the Christ. He claimed to be a Christ who will suffer and die. That wasn't their picture of Christ at all. Their Messiah, as they imagined it, was going to be some kind of military political leader, lead against the oppressors, the, the Roman government, set them free. He'll be, a, he'll be a hero leading. And if anybody dies, it's the enemies that will die at his hand. Even if they could imagine Messiah dying, he'd go down in battle while he's taking out his enemies. But this dying Messiah, that, they had no use for that. But worst of all, Jesus taught a crucified Christ. That when Messiah dies, he'll die on a cross. Now, a cross is the worst way you can have anybody die. It was a curse death. That's how Deuteronomy teaches. You take somebody and you hang their body up high, you've, you've put a curse upon them. They deserve to be in hell, is what you've said. So whether you kill them that way or take their dead body and hang it up, that's a curse death. And there is no way the Jews could imagine the Messiah, the Christ, dying a cursed death. It just wasn't possible. Because you know, that's what Paul says. I preach all the time. First Corinthians chapter one. I preach Christ crucified to the Jews. That's a stumbling block, but it doesn't matter. I preach it anyway because it's the truth. Jesus dies on the cross, suffering the curse that our sins deserve. But you know what really bothered him most of all? He claimed to be a divine Christ, that he was more than just a man, that this man was also the son of God in some real sense. Not just a child of God like we're all children of God, but no son of God with the nature of God, and that they could not tolerate. So are you claiming to be the Christ? Are you claiming to be the son of the blessed one, the high priest asked, and Jesus' response, I am. Finally, he breaks the silence with just two words, but what powerful words, I am. Now, he could have said yes, yes would have told it, but I like those words, I am, because that's the beginning of a sentence just waiting for you to fill it in. I am claiming that, or how about this, I am the Christ, the son of the living God using that confession that Peter himself made. Oh, Jesus says those words and everything goes crazy at that point. They're, they're done with the trial. The high priest says, we don't need more testimony. No more witnesses because we've heard it now. We got what we wanted. They accuse him now of blasphemy. Now, perhaps you understand blasphemy. Blasphemy is an offense against God. It's kind of like you and I know how sometimes we'll speak about each other and you'll feel like you've been offended You've been disrespected. If you do that to God, that's called blasphemy. And it's a very serious thing in Old Testament law. Could get you killed. Now, what Jesus has done, because blasphemy can be done several different ways. What he's done is not so much speak against God, say something bad about God. No. What he did was he took himself and put himself up on God's level. And from a Jewish perspective, if you're a mere human, but you put yourself up like you're a God... Well, they can show that totally wrong. That, that cheapens the definition of what God is. It, it diminishes God's glory when you start letting the concept of God apply to a, a man. And so for them, that was the blasphemy. And so he has said it. They got him. Now, he threw in one more thing that he says, a bonus, if you will. He says, I am. And soon now, 
One day you will see the Son of Man, the title Jesus loved to use for himself, more often than any other title, because that's a good Old Testament title for the Messiah. You'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power on high, sitting on the throne of God, and you'll see the Son of Man riding on the clouds. Now, if you hear that, once you know it comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, is where Daniel gave that prophecy of the Son of Man, the Messiah, riding on the clouds to the throne. Now, if you hear that and you're thinking second coming as he returns to earth on the clouds, and that's where everybody will now finally see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you'll have the ultimate proof. That's true, you will see that, but that's not what Daniel was talking about. It's the reverse. Daniel describes how the Son of Man leaves earth and goes to heaven in the clouds. That's that story that the book of Acts tells about the ascension of Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose three days later. And then 40 days later, he will ascend to heaven riding on the clouds. And and as the scriptures tell us, and then sit on the throne of God at his right hand, fulfilling what Daniel 7 said. Jesus says just a few days from now, just 40 plus days, you'll see this. Now, they won't literally see it. They won't be standing there, and they won't see what goes on in heaven. But it will happen. It will be fulfilled in about 40 days. And then 10 days later, the day of Pentecost, Peter will get up and preach the first gospel sermon. And in Acts 2, he'll preach this. You killed your Messiah, but God raised him. He ascended on high. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne, just like the Scriptures said he would. And that will be the sermon they'll preach all through the book of Acts, the resurrection and ascension of Christ to the throne of heaven. Well, Jesus really is claiming the very thing that they could not accept, and they condemn him to blasphemy. It also says in the text that the high priest, he took his robe and he ripped his robe. You're saying, what's up with that? It's a nonverbal symbol of strong emotions against something. We, we got our own version of these nonverbal symbols. You ever gotten so upset or whatever that you, you hit or you kicked? Hopefully you didn't do it so hard you got to bandage it later. Or maybe you just you rear back and you scream and you pull your hair. Or here's an oldie but goodie. Some of you, you've picked up something and you threw it. I uh, went golfing with one of my cousins once a long time ago. I remember how angry he got because he was having a bad day, cutting and slicing, whatever. We finally got to one hole and he had had enough. He picked up his golf bag. We're standing next to the lake. And right as he got ready, all I said was, was it your intent to throw the whole bag or just one club? You know, he looked at me a little devilish grin. He sat it down. He took one club and he threw it. See, that's what I meant. Now, you know, when you're that soft, you could have just done, not done it, but it felt good, he said. He needed to do something. We, we've got our nonverbal ways of expressing how I feel. And so this is theirs, ripped his robe. And then they vote, they convict, they condemn. He's worthy of death. Now, they've got their Jewish charge against Jesus. They're going to need something else, though, when they take him to the Roman governor because he doesn't recognize Jewish law. They'll need some kind of crime against Rome, and they'll come up with something. But in the meantime, they've got what they need for their Jewish consistency. If anyone ever asks or if they're ever audited or served, somebody's looking and say, why'd you do that? Why'd you take this countryman and turn him over to be killed? They'll say, blasphemy. And he did it in a court of law under oath. We've got it in the records. You can read it for yourself. They've got their Jewish charge now to condemn Jesus to death. But the whole time, Jesus remains silent. He doesn't resist. He doesn't respond to them at all. He remains silent. That's what Isaiah prophesied he would do. Chapter 53, where he describes the suffering Messiah. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's like a lamb being led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's silent as he's being sheared, but he opened not his mouth. And Peter, who stood there and watched it, tells the story later in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 19. Peter says, listen, we can learn a lesson from Jesus. 
about when you are wrongfully being uh, being accused and abused and when you suffer wrongfully. Now, verse 20 says, now, if you did the crime and now they're making you pay, you have no reason to complain. But if you didn't do wrong and yet they're mistreating you and you bear up under it patiently, that's a commendable thing. He says, is for this reason that Jesus suffered, that you and I could follow his example, follow in his steps. And then he goes on to say, when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he was mistreated, he did not threaten back. Peter wants us to learn how to be like Jesus. Now, I have to tell you, there's a time and place for everything, Ecclesiastes says. So there's a time where you ought to stand up. You ought to speak out. You ought to call for your rights and say that's wrong. But I just want to put in a word for the times where you'll say, I'm just going to take it. I'm not going to make a case here. Because as Peter says, Jesus stood there and took it and then said, I'll leave it to the Lord, the one who judges righteously. He'll take care of this in his own way. And sometimes that's what you and I will do. We'll just simply say, I'll take it. But God will sort this out sometime later. Oh, there's one more thing in the story because we started with Peter. We've got to end with Peter because Peter is now going to do those famous denials. Jesus prophesied to Peter that very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, no way. But he does. So, so picking up with our story now, there's the girl in verse 66, 68, a servant girl, the high priest. She says, I recognize you. Aren't you one of his disciples? Weren't you with Jesus now? She said, no, nope. denied it. And a rooster crowed. Boy, that should have been his reminder. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, crow twice, you'll deny three times. I've failed round one. I've got to get ready for round two and do it right. It should have been his warning. Nah, it didn't work. He, he moves away somewhere else, and, and she catches him again. She says to people standing around, pointing to him, looking at him, he's a disciple. He denies it again. No, I am not. He's ready for it this time. And then finally comes the third occasion. In that third occasion, he's now surrounded by some men. These could be some of the assistants of those officials, which means if they know who he is and they tell those guys he's in real trouble. So Peter, he really pulls out all the stops. He's cursing and swearing. I am not a disciple of Jesus. And I hope you've learned by now that when you make a statement, you want to affirm something or deny something, that adding cursing and swearing and yelling and pounding doesn't actually do anything to the validity of your statement. Your statement rises or falls on whether or not it's true or not. That other stuff is just an annoyance. And set it aside. Think carefully, choose your words carefully, and just say what needs to be said. That's really all you do. Well, Peter does this, and I like the drama here. Verse 72, when he does that third denial, the rooster crowed, and he remembered. He remembered what Jesus said. He remembered his strong opposition. Oh, there's no way I will deny you. These other guys might, but not me. They may fall, but not me. And now he, he is filled with remorse. Now, he and Judas both will be remorseful for what they've done, but Judas' remorse takes him in a spiral down until he kills himself. But Peter's remorse ultimately leads to repentance and restoration. He'll get back on track. And I want to give you something you and I could learn from this as well. Because when Luke tells the story in chapter 22, he adds one more detail. At the moment that Peter denied that third time, at the moment the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked. Looked at him. Didn't say a word. No verbal reprimand, just looked. Folks, you know that look, don't you? When someone you respect, you'd like them to think well of you, but you disappoint them, and they just simply look at you with disappointment. Like a parent or a grandparent that you've disappointed. A teacher, a, a spouse, because some of you husbands know, there's a few times you've seen that look where you've said something or did something you shouldn't have done, and all you got was a look of disappointment. I would suggest to you that would be a good ethical motivator for us. When you do something wrong and you're inclined to just 
brush it off as no big deal, rationalize, justify, we can do that so well. That's no big deal. Everybody else does it. It's a small thing. It's not like I killed somebody. might do us well to vision ourselves standing in that courtyard and Jesus turns and looks at us with a disappointment. Why would you do that? Maybe that will be the motivator for us to take seriously some of these little things we do, let alone the big things, and say, I, I need to not do that. That's wrong. You know, I look at this passage. Isn't it amazing how powerful Jesus can speak when he's silent? The silence can do that, especially when done well. You know, there's a lot of people in this story, I'm thinking they'd have done well to practice some silence. Those false accusers, that counsel that condemned Jesus to death, and Peter with his denial, they'd have done well to practice silence. But the one who actually was silent, who finally broke it with just two words, I am, uh, he spoke the best of all. Well, that's what I commend to you as a lesson for all of us to learn from, to learn from Jesus, the silent Messiah. Hey, let's pray. Our Father God, so grateful for the story of Jesus and the lessons we can learn. And in a story like this, I'm inclined not to say very much at all. Just simply say this one thing. Help us to be like Jesus in all that we say and do. Help us to learn from him so that as we go through our, our life and as we take this next week, that all that we do, we'll do it like Jesus would as we follow his example and share his glory with the world. We thank you and praise you for all good things through the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Can we just thank Dr. Donnie Presley for being with us this morning? And let's also just thank the Lord for being in our midst this morning. It is so good to have you all here with us, and we look forward to seeing you next week. On your way out, you can go ahead and get your Christmas Eve tickets. They are around the corner by the Christmas tree. We have eight Christmas Eve service times for you to choose from. Well, it's so good to see you all, and we will see you again next weekend. Have a great week.